Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is Revelation 22, verses 12 to 21. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into this city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who says, hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So to, to this morning's passage, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. We're continuing our series called Blessing Begins with Hunger. Um, and this week we're in the book of Revelation. Those of you with physical Bibles open will notice, as it was mentioned earlier, that these are the final passages in Scripture, the final verses in the whole of the Bible. And this little section is topped and tailed with what is surely one of the most wonderful phrases that a follower of Christ could hear uttered from the lips of Jesus, the words, I am coming soon. The subtitle that we have for today's passage is The Taste of Eternity. And of course, we're in Revelation, so we're thinking and reading about what is to come, what we can look forward to. And what we're reading today may leave quite a sweet taste in your mouth already as we've read through it. Because we've had talk of reward, talk of a tree of life, uh, of entering a city, um, a city which has been described in previous verses in Revelation as something absolutely delightful. And the offer of the water of life. Maybe these words elicit a comforting, a sweet taste in your mouth. Or maybe there's a bit of a bitter taste in your mouth because you've heard some of the warnings. Outside are the dogs, immoral murderers, idolaters, those who practice falsehood. If anyone adds or takes away from these words, God will add to him the plagues or take away his share in the tree of life. Maybe for you, there's a fearful, a bitter taste in your mouth as you read these words. So we're going to think about this taste of eternity this morning and what the future holds for us. Now, Thinking of Revelation, you might be tempted to think, well, this isn't all that vital, really. Not, not relevant to my life right now. 
I best not get caught up in all the predictions and the, the nonsense that goes on that sometimes is attached to end times study. And, and you'd be right, don't, don't go down the rabbit holes. But the Lord himself tells us in Matthew that nobody knows the when or the how. And that's, that's good enough for me, okay? But that doesn't mean that there isn't treasure for us to find here. In fact, the context for this tells us that these words are incredibly important. In the previous few verses in Revelation, we read that blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. John is told, do not seal up the words. And we have the warning in this passage about anyone who takes away or adds to the words. You see, the words of Revelation, just like the words of all of Scripture, are for our good and for his glory. They're for the building up of God's family, for bringing image bearers to Christ. They explain our existence and point us to our Savior. Now, Revelation may not be the first place I would point a new believer to read, um, but when we read it in God's Spirit's power and wisdom, there's a lot for us to find, and we will find the taste and the hope of eternity in these pages. So we're going to have a think about that this morning. We're going to think a little bit about what that eternity is going to look like. Because we have a little bit of insight here, so we're going to break that down and think about what is the taste of heaven. And we're also going to think about who is speaking to us here. So John is the author of Revelation, um, but what's important here is who the message has come from, who we're going to be with, who describes himself here, who is bringing his reward, and who is coming soon. So we're going to think about the taste of our author. And then we're going to ask a question of ourselves, okay? Possibly a difficult question about our response to what we read here. We'll ask ourselves, do we have a taste for it? Do we have a taste for our eternity to come? I was a little bit tempted to create a collage at this point of all the kind of signs and bumper stickers saying eternity where and big burning flames and things, but I, uh, I thought better of it for your sake. So to your first point, a taste of heaven. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Now, we haven't been studying right through Revelation, but when, not if, when you do for yourself, in chapter 21, you will read about the new Jerusalem. Now, I thought very carefully over the last few days about considering what's going on in the, in the Middle East right now about what I should say specifically about this. And I came to the conclusion that I should say nothing about that other than to say that it's maybe best to remove ourselves from that situation as we read God's words and concentrate on what God has said. Now, feel free to speak to me privately if you want my uneducated, unpolitical opinion on that. Um, but I would much rather you spoke to me afterwards about what God's words are saying in this passage. So in chapter 21, we read about the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. It's great imagery, isn't it? When 
Suzanne and myself got married. Um, we did it on a bit of a budget. Okay, we were, we were pretty thrifty. I say we. Suzanne was very thrifty with the whole thing. But one thing that we paid good money for was our wedding photographer. Um, well, photographers, um, for anybody interested, Navy Blur, Christine and Xander Neal, check them out, really recommend them. When you're getting married, you want to capture the day, don't you? You want to capture the whole thing. But what's the one photo that you really want to be able to look back on and get excited about? It's the first look, isn't it? In America, they have this whole thing now where you do it before the service and it's a whole carry on and whole nonsense. But for us here, it's you know, the groom's kind of standing here and, and the bride is walking down the aisle to some beautiful music. And it's that moment where the groom turns around and sees his beautiful bride and thinks, oh my word, she is stunning. How beautiful. You want to capture that look, that reaction. You want to see the groom's reaction to the beauty, the beautifully dressed bride. And this language here in Revelation is purposeful. This new holy city is stunning. It's breathtaking. It's like a beautifully dressed bride. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. We're told it's huge, 1,400 miles squared. The wall's 200 feet thick, made of jasper, a city of pure gold, foundations decorated with every kind of precious stone, streets of gold as pure as glass. This is, this is quite a city to behold. In chapter 21, verse 23, we read, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. We hear of splendor, of safety, of glory and honor lit up by the glory of God. Now, throughout the Bible, light and dark generally represent good and evil. So there is some, possibly some figurative language here. Um, we, we don't quite know to the depths. It goes on to say, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. So we don't know how much of this is literal or how much is figurative or symbolic. But what we can say for sure is that it is good, it is pleasing, it's special and highly desirable. We will be blessed to enter the gates of the city. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. The other place in God's word where we read about the tree of life is in Genesis 2 and 3, right in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And at that point, two specific trees are mentioned, okay? We've got the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God commands not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, they disobey and they eat and they are thrown out of the garden. And at this point, God places cherubim at the gates, angels to guard the way to the tree of life, saying, he, the man, must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
God did not want man to live forever in this fallen state. Yet, now we read in Revelation, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember our key verse for, for this series from, from Matthew and the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There's a correlation that isn't coincidence here. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who come to the cross of Christ and wash their robes in the cleansing blood of the Lamb, taking on the righteousness of Jesus. And what are they filled with? The fruit of the tree of life, eternal life with Christ in the new holy city. See, we need to remember that the the Bible is a redemptive ark. In Genesis, we read about creation, this beautiful garden where mankind walk with God day by day in his glory. But then with this fall of man, We are banished from the garden and removed from the tree of life. But here in Revelation, we read about this new glorious city, holy and beautiful, and we regain access to the tree of life because covered by Jesus' righteousness, we have the right to enter. We regain access to the tree of life. Back in the creation story in Genesis 2.15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So the design was for man to work. Imagine with me for a second a world without the fall, okay? A world where mankind continued to walk in step with God, where Adam and Eve multiplied and filled the world and worked as they were designed to. What might our world look like now? Might it be beautiful, stunning? It would be holy. God's glory would be still with us. As would the tree of life. Just like this new holy city that's described. The Bible is the story of God's redemptive work, the story of God restoring things to the way they should be as we walk in harmony with God. It's back to today's verse, though. In verse 15, we go on to read this. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Okay, so there's warning here as well. I watched a movie a while back about, uh, it was a true story about a minister who believed he'd heard from God in a dream, and he believed that God had told him that all people will go to heaven, that God would not cut anyone off from himself. But here, when we read God's word, we read a different story. When we think about what the taste of eternity is, we don't only think about our sweet future when we're secured in Christ. There's also an alternative. There's, there's no porch in heaven. There's no waiting room. There's no sitting on a fence. It's in or it's out. And you may not think of yourself as a murderer. 
You may claim you don't practice magic arts. You may not be sexually immoral. You may believe that you're not an idolater. But those who haven't washed their robes have no right to the tree of life, have no right to enter the city of God. They will be outside with the dogs. Now, some people are fans of this type of language, okay? We, we've all heard it. We've all heard Turner Burn in this country. I'm not a fan of this language. It doesn't sit well with me. It jars with my nature, my natural tendency towards compassion and comfort and encouragement. But God's word is holy and truthful and correct. And it takes precedent to any of my desires. And sometimes God's word is tough. Sometimes it says things that clash with our broken nature, our broken tendencies, our fallen nature. So when we read about heaven, maybe for you the taste is sweet. This beautiful scene depicted for us. But there is a better alternative that we need to be aware of. So next we want to think about what we learn about our author. Spoiler alert, it's in verse 16. It tells us that it is Jesus. And I see four important points for us to glean from this text about Jesus. Four things he says that tell us or remind us of his nature, his history, and his future. So firstly, in verse 13, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, this is, this is Jesus speaking, okay? Jesus, who came to earth as a man who walked around, ate, drank, slept, who worked. We're reminded here that Jesus is God. He's before and beyond time and before and beyond creation. In John 1, we're told that in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. We know that Jesus was the Word. So here we are reminded that Jesus was there in the beginning, that through him all was made. If you remember back to the creation account in Genesis 1, and God said, and it was, And God said, and it was, the word was there at the beginning, and through him all things were made. The word spoke into existence. When I call Jesus our author here, I don't just mean he's the author in Revelation 22. I mean he is the one who authored our existence. Do we truly understand who this God-man was? Who this God-man is He was the beginning, he is the end, he's the whole story of the Bible. This whole redemption arc is all about Jesus. The second day in verse 16, we read, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The Old Testament is littered with prophecy about the coming Messiah, possibly most famously that he would come from David's line, the root and offspring of David. And the morning star relates to prophecy in the book of Numbers. 
about the ruler that was foreseen who would conquer the nations. And it symbolizes this new day that Jesus brings when he will return, making all things new. Jesus is reminding us here that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. The fulfillment of all prophecy is in him. We can take comfort and have confidence in his words. Thirdly, in verse 12, we read that Jesus brings a reward. He says, my reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. This is a bit of a, a tricky bit of scripture, okay? And we don't have all the details of how this works. We don't have all the understanding. Some things we simply won't fully understand until we meet him ourselves. But what we do know is that we will be rewarded accordingly. There's similar language used elsewhere in Revelation, in the Gospels and letters, even in Psalms and the prophets. Don't confuse what I'm saying here, okay? When we are in Christ, our future is secure. By its grace, by faith alone. Don't confuse me in this. But we are not passive bystanders in this world. Simply waiting for the day and hour of his return. We're not just standing at a bus stop waiting for eternity. He clearly says, I will give to each person according to what they have done. We need to let the Holy Spirit examine our hearts. Let him speak to us. Let him guide us. We need to seek God's will for our life. We need to seek his word for his guidance in our lives day by day till he comes. And fourthly, and of incredible importance, Jesus tells us that he is coming soon. Now, 2,000 later, 2,000 years later, we may think soon feels a bit off to me, okay? Um, but we can rest secure on this promise that our Savior will return so in this passage in Revelation, in these last 10 verses in God's word, we have these reminders that it's all about Jesus. It always has been. It always will be. He's our savior, this long-awaited conquering king. There is a reward that he brings. So our lives on earth aren't just a waiting game. We aren't passive on this world. And he is coming back to judge, to redeem, to restore and renew. So we come to our final point. Do we have a taste for eternity? I'm always struck by Paul's words in Philippians 1. Verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Suzanne and I went to uh, Glasgow a few weeks ago for our 10-year anniversary. Um, no chair for that? No? No? <laughs> Um, it was three lovely, peaceful nights of bliss, loads of brilliant fun, walking about in the cold and having a great time, and mostly a huge amount of child-free sleep. 
But I was joking with some friends before we left that I would, I would quite prefer it if Jesus could wait until after our lovely holiday for him to return and take us all home. Um, and obviously, he, he, he did wait, so that was quite nice of him. But as followers of Christ, our mindset needs to be on our returning Savior. This world, okay, is broken. I shouldn't need to sell that idea to you. We aren't living in utopia. If utopia was promised to you at some point, I don't know where it's coming from. It probably feels further than ever from your experience here on earth. The economist John Maynard Keynes wrote an essay in 1930 entitled Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And in the essay, he made the prediction that by the time his grandchildren had grown up, which would basically be now, that people might be working just 15 hours a week. His argument was that over time, thanks to machines and technology and new ideas, people would get more productive. An hour of labor produces more and more stuff. So Keynes figured that we would just decide to work less. As you well know, that's not how things have panned out. We may have found progress in a thousand ways, yet you'll struggle to find an area of life that, where we've supposedly progressed, progressed, that isn't tainted by the sickness of our broken world. Economic advancements have been incredible, yet a few years ago, banking greed caused a global economic crash. Medical advancements over the past few years since the time of Keynes are just phenomenal, and yet Big Pharma is causing people to die of preventable diseases, and we're fighting over the morality of whether to bring children with Down syndrome into the world. We can design incredible architecture, huge skyscrapers, and yet homelessness grows. We force people to live in places unfit for animals. We are not on a trajectory to utopia, are we? The world is broken, and it's going to take something earth-shattering to change its course. Perhaps... Perhaps our only hope to change the way things are going is a returning saviour. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Is our response the same as that of the writer of Revelation? Is our response, amen, come Lord Jesus? That maybe depends on a few things for you. Firstly, whether the imagery we hear in this passage elicits that sweet, comforting taste or a bitter, fearful taste. When we read verse 14 with its offer to the right to the tree of life and entering the city, we, we might have different reactions here today. Maybe some of us are thinking, what is that on about? I'm fine. I don't need to wash my robes. I'm fine. None of this is for me. And if that's you, then I would guess that you're not even interested in a taste of eternity. And I would doubt that I can talk you into considering it, but by all means, I'd love to hear your explanation for what's going on in the world, and I would love to share a bit, of, a bit more, a bit of a deeper explanation of mine. Maybe some of us believe all of this, and we know we have come to know Jesus our robes are washed, 
And yet, we struggle to get excited. We struggle to get excited about this idea of Jesus returning. We, we don't particularly want him to come soon. I believe for many of us, we're so caught up in our own little worlds, in our hopes, our dreams, our efforts to control and to achieve that we're missing the forest for the trees. Listen to St. Paul. We should desire to be with Christ, which is better by far. Maybe for some of us, the challenges and the struggles of life right now could be pushing us towards desiring Christ's return more. Like Paul, we know there is better ahead of us and we can't wait for God's kingdom to come. If this is you, then I pray that God is doing a work in you, in your suffering, to draw you towards his love, to, the, to his, his peace in the knowledge and the faith that he knows and he cares and he is with you in the midst of it all. And one day, one day his radiant beauty is going to wipe away every tear and he will, he will make all things new. Psalm 6 verse 3 says, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, how, how long, Lord, how long? When we cry out to Christ, to God, for our suffering to end, it can be a bit like a precursor to us crying out to Jesus to come back soon. Come back and put an end to all of this suffering. And maybe there's some of us who are challenged by this. Maybe you believe that, yes, the world is broken. You feel the shadows deepening. You wish that you could see it all made new. And you believe that what we're talking about today is true. But you are yet to come to Jesus and wash your robes. And if that is you, please hear what Steph has said this morning from verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Blessing begins with hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Come, come to the tree of life. Come to the free, life-giving waters. Come and wash your robes in the soul-cleansing blood of Jesus and take of the tree of life. Come to this holy, beautiful city of God. His offer is open to all and any who are thirsty. Come to Jesus. From the first verses to the last, this word of God that we have explains our existence. It's a story of our creator. It's a story of our creation, the story of our fall, the story of our redemption. These final words we read today give us the story of our future, a taste of the hope to come for our renewal. And it is stunning. 
the fruition of the wonderful plans of God for our good and for his glory. The best news of all is that Revelation may be mostly telling us about the future, but this work that we rely on for our future already happened 2,000 years ago. It happened when Jesus bled and died at Calvary on the cross and rose three days later to defeat death for us. And we get to see him soon. He is coming soon. And his word to us is, come. Let anyone, anyone who is thirsty come. Take the free gift. Blessed are those who wash their robes in Jesus. It was always and will always be about Jesus. And he says to you and to me, to us all, come to me. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us all this morning that as we read these words, as we think a little bit about what is to come, the the known and the unknown, but especially what we can be sure of. God, that if our reaction is is bitter, if if it doesn't taste good, if something is jarring with us, Lord, that we would question what that is. And Lord, I pray that those who know that this is true but have not come to you would come today, Lord. May they come and partake of your free gift. And God, if we are suffering today, Lord, may you, may you comfort us in the knowledge that one day, one day we will be with you. That we can lean on the trustworthy knowledge that you are coming soon to heal to fix all that was wrong, to correct the course of where things are going, to renew and redeem and wipe all the tears and make all things new. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son sent to save us. And Lord, as we worship, may we be aware that we're not talking about just everyday stuff around here and our lives, why we are not bypassers now, bystanders now, Lord. We're not just talking about now, we're talking about our eternity, one which has been bought, purchased by your blood. Lord, be with us as we worship, Lord, and may our worship be beautiful to your ears. Amen.